our next message, God is holy. We believe God is holy, which comes from our statement of faith. For this message, we have Derek Rishmaway. No, Rish, Rishmaway. Uh, let me make the connection between what we just heard. Maway, Mawage, Mawage. Close? Thank you, brother. Now, just so you know, this gives you a little bit of flavor of Derek. If you've ever listened to Mere Fidelity, this gives you a little bit of flavor. Uh, he uh, actually serves at Reformed University Fellowship. He's a campus minister at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, he has a PhD candidate in systematic theology here at Trinity Divinity School. He blogs at Reformed-ish uh, less than he used to because he's trying to complete his PhD. And he co-hosts a podcast called Mere Fidelity. Uh, for a time, he wrote a monthly essay for Christianity Today as part of the Confessing God series. Uh, I would say this uh, personally to you, Derek, that as a Palestinian, I appreciated your autobiographical account grounded biblically in the article, I am not Abraham's mistake. I appreciated that very much. Derek's dissertation topic is, our God is a consuming fire, a biblical and dogmatic account of divine holiness, and he's working with Kevin Van Hooser as his supervisor. Let me pray as you come, Derek. Lord, it's been a rich feast as we've focused. We have lingered not only in your presence, but pondering who you are. And Lord, we pray that it would, it, it would not merely be abstract ponderings, but it would be ponderings and reflections that would turn to prayer and worship. And Lord, we acknowledge that, that you, we, we cannot separate your, your attributes. They're, they're who you are. And, and yet it is helpful at times to pull it apart, not permanently, but to, to look at it in light of the others, other attributes in light of who you are as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we pray for Brother Derek as he comes and speaks to us, with us, Theology is best lived and learned in community. We are eager learners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to set myself up here, move that out of the way. Uh, good morning. It's great to be with you here at the pre-lunch hunger session. Uh, which is better than the post-lunch coma session. Uh, I, think, uh, I think we've got the panel for that. Uh, Dr. Carson Dr. Carson would have broken through that. Nobody's going to sleep through what he says. But, um, but I'm, anyways, I'm glad to be here with you today. It's a great honor to be spending this time at TED's, uh, engaging in deep theological contemplation on uh, what is really the center of theology, the, 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 subject, the, the great subject of theology, God himself, theology proper. But I have to confess, I have some trepidations about doing so, not only because I happen to be sharing the same podium with basically a bunch of people I quote all the time, but mostly 
because of the subject. God, God, right? Uh, which I've been asked to address, God, the Holy One. Uh, in her recent Systematic Theology, Volume 2, Catherine Sondrager has ordered her reflections on the triune reality of God around that rich text in Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is holy, Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, Ephraim Radner uh, suggests that in speaking of God, we run the risk of blasphemy and, I, and pain, and I think that there's something true of that, especially when it comes to God's holiness. And so in approaching the mountain where God's glory blazes forth in flame, feels like we should at least remove our, our, our shoes or our snow boots or something as we enter in on, on this sacred ground. And yet, uh, Dr. Van Hooser, my own, my own advisor, notes, to refuse to speak would not only violate my contract with Greg, and that, that, that's something I never would do, but it would also be theological sloth that fails to respond to the provocations, as he puts it, the provocations of God's self-revelation. And I'm sure many of you have felt that weight from time to time on a Sunday morning when you're about to get up and climb into the pulpit and ask, who am I? No, I should step down. I should run away. I should speak not, lest my unworthiness be exposed and God's judgment fall on me as I take his name in my mouth. But we must not be like the wicked servant who buries the talent entrusted to him out of fear of his master, but rather as those who have been entrusted with a greater treasure of the truth of God, we must speak as we can, trusting that the spirit of holiness will sanctify our speech about the Holy One, that it might be fruitful. Now, in that spirit, I would ask you to do two things with me. First, I'm going to read a passage from Isaiah 6. So get out your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 6, or your phones, whichever one. I actually forgot my Bible, so I'm reading off a phone. It's fine. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to read Isaiah 6, and I'm hoping that this text will anchor our reflections together. It's not going to stick strictly to it, but, but that's going to be our our landing spot. And then second, I'll ask you to join me in prayer afterwards that we might entreat the Lord to bless our reflections upon his holy word. So hear now God's word out of the prophecy of Isaiah. Now in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having, take, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. 
your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and make their ear and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'll get to our text shortly, but I wanted to open our time reflecting a bit on the broader cultural landscape in which we find ourselves thinking about the holiness of God. I'm not a sociologist, nor are most of you, but as, as Kevin uh, says, you're the public theologians of your local congregations. You're the organic intellectuals of your communities. Uh, and through your preaching and your counsel, you're attempting to minister Christ to the people in your churches in the present moment. And this requires some reading of the signs of the times, right? And I think this is particularly pressing when we consider the doctrine of God's holiness, because to be honest, I don't think the greatest challenges to it are primarily happening uh, through specific doctrinal movements in the academy, although those are there, uh, but rather from the late modern landscape in which most of us in the U.S. and the West find ourselves. And, and in this case, I'm going to be retracing some ground that you all might have heard yesterday and before, but I'm going to begin where others have and will continue to, uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's contention that we live in a secular age, right? This is an age, he says, in which belief in God is uh, one option among many, right? Within that age, through a long process, we don't have time to get into, and in any case, I'm not sure I agree with his whole argument for how that works. We've moved from a world in which belief in God was just the default and not believing in God was basically unthinkable to the point where belief in God is one option among many. Where even if you believe in God, uh, you do so in a context where our generalized experience of the world is such that, that we live in a world that seems self-contained. It plausibly feels feels, and feels is a very operative thing here, feels like a self-sufficient natural order as opposed to one that implies a supernatural transcendent one towards which it is ordered, right? So, so, so one that requires a God for its existence. And our making sense of the moral world that we inhabit uh, doesn't seem to require that. Like there's, so he calls all this, this kind of vibe that we inhabit uh, in which we live and move and have our being, the imminent frame. Everything is fully imminent, right? So instead of inhabiting a creation that's indelibly charged with the glory of God, where, where everything within it points beyond itself sacramentally, um, we experience it or we can experience it as otherwise, a bare nature that could just be without reference to anything outside of it. You go out in the, out in the, out in the cold and the snow, and, you know, each little snowflake, oh, the intricacy of God's design and uniqueness. Okay. Or it's just the 
happenstance of crystallizing patterns of H2O and yada yada, and, and it's just nature, right? Bare nature. In that sense, the world has been disenchanted, right? Not only are the gods, the goblins, and the fairies who used to dwell in every dale and glen gone, driven out by, by the Lord God as he, you know, disenchanted the pagan universe, um, the worship of the one God has become fragile. Uh, the, the, the purification process of nature has, like, gone too far. It, the creation's been bleached to the point where uh, it seems like God himself is called into question. The creator is called into question. And that's so, like, at this metaphysical sense that there's something there. Also in the moral sense, with the existential uh, roof to the cosmos closed off, there has arisen a modern moral order where morality, social value, our deepest longings, our highest goods, the sources of value and significant uh, experiences of fullness, um, all of these things have to be sought in, in a fully imminent way, in, in a this-worldly way. Um, now, on Taylor's understanding, this opens up reality to uh, several interpretations, including the one that we typically hear when we hear the word secular, right? So we think about, when you hear the word secular, we think natural conceptions of reality where there are no gods or God or the divine and the rise of science has explained away everything. We've got the enlightenment, which you've kind of talked about before and so forth. And, And you get this exclusive humanism, a worldview or a social imaginary that can completely account for meaning and significance apart from any transcendence or any divine or anything like that. So it's just, you know, full-blown atheistic uh, secular humanism. That said, that's not all that that imminent frame kind of creates space for, right? The overall framework also allows for imminent, other alternative imminent religious spiritualities to emerge. So one of the things that Taylor talks about is that in the emerging battle that that came up between traditional religious belief and then kind of the rising tide of... um, kind of exclusive humanistic uh, belief is, is uh, a sort of fragmentation, a pluralization of your options. More options emerged. And so it's not just that there's Judeo-Christian transcendent views of religion or atheism, right? But he talks about a galloping pluralism on the spiritual plane that has emerged partly by way of reaction to both traditional Judeo-Christian uh, transcendent religious belief and in reaction to kind of the, the, the potentially more frigid, hyper-rationalist, exclusive humanism. So the sense of loss, the drabness, the coldness of space and nature that, that Gavin talked about yesterday, um, people feel that, and so they try and get something back, something of the charged vibe to things back, but that goes all sorts of ways, right? Anything from more philosophic, pantheistic religious systems where God and the world are identified, or post-romantic nature worship, or syncretistic appropriations of Eastern mysticism and transcendentalisms and so forth. And so you've got like all these spiritual options that open up over the next few hundred years after the Enlightenment. And this process has been going on for decades, centuries, and so forth, and it's only gotten weirder with the internet, right? Um, so this, this is where we touch down a little bit. Uh, in her work, Strange Rites, New Spiritualities for a Godless World, World Tara Isabella Burton has sort of like charted what this looks like online. She talks about different remixed spiritualities. There's sort of bespoke bric-a-brac spiritualities that have emerged with everything from like a retrieval of Wiccanism uh, 
to witchcraft on TikTok. It's actually called Witch Talk. Uh, I kid you not, all these little, all these little girls on, titch, on, on TikTok who are into witchcraft tried to, tried to hex the moon. If you Google that. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Was it, was it the moon or the sun? It's wild, right? And you're like, what is, what is going on? Yes, what is going on? Uh, but you've got wellness cults. You've got left political uh, Satanism that has arisen. Like, I, I know a guy who's a Satanist because he doesn't want to vote Republican, basically. Uh, you've got... I mean, Republican, Evangelical, Trump, et cetera. That's, and so you've got like a left political Satanist movement, right? You've got Instagram accounts with massive, massive followings dedicated to astrological readings of signs of the times. This is everywhere, right? And it's not just like left-coded stuff. You know, oh, those progs. This is right too, right? This is, this is, this is um, I mean, there, Jordan Peterson's popular lectures on scripture interpreted through Jungian archetypes is more coded right and so you've got millions and millions of young men watching somebody lecture about the nature of Scripture. He, he, gave, a, he gave a sermon in, in Ephesus the other, the other day, and there's videos of it. It was basically, you know, an old-school fundamentalist, but Jungian. And then you've got, you've got more extreme versions. You've got uh, kind of right-wing, uh, neo-pagan, pop Nietzschean, uh, man-vitalistic movements where People are trying to worship the old gods like Odin and Thor, and that's going to make you a real man as you, I don't know, eat liver and raw meat and all sorts of things. And, and, it all can, and, and if you're into liver and raw meat, that's fine. But the, the thing is, <laughs> um, these things are, are approaches towards tapping into more, right? When you kill the one god, the many rise again. There's a, there's a vacuum, and it gets filled, not with something clearer and purer and more rational, but just weirder. See, because we all do have what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis. We all have, we are wired to pick up on something in the world, and the only thing is, under the pressure of sin, that has become distorted. And so we worship inevitably, but we worship sinfully. And this needs to be grasped when we're thinking about things like the rise of the nuns, the non-religiously affiliated in the last 20 years, everybody's talking about that, there's a million books on it. But this is, this is increasingly recognized, but when you're talking to these people, you're not talking to an old school Bertrand Russell uh, type of atheist who looks up at God in heaven, has an English accent, and says, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, or something like that. Um, and you, you even have some Richard Dawkins types, the, the new atheism. Instead, you're often talking to somebody who believes in God, something who fills all things and communes with you when you're in nature and you're wearing crystals and vibing and communicating a general sense of well-being to your anxieties and fears in a very anxious, fearful world. What you're doing is, is, is uh, you're, you're, you, you've, got this, you've got this something there that, that communicates something, even while it doesn't really mostly interfere with your, with your moral life and all that. But, but as a friend in L.A., he's a pastor in L.A., put it this way. When I meet with somebody for the first time, I don't ask them, like, oh, do you believe in God or not anymore? I, say, I ask them, what, so what spiritual communities have you been a part of? And he inevitably gets answers, right? That's, that's the default. I don't assume you're a Christian, but I don't assume you're not something else, right? And it's not necessarily one of the big five. With all that said, what we need to catch here is that all of these movements, exclusive human humanism, and the varied spiritualities that have arisen alongside of it, these are all essentially pagan in character. 
Uh, in his book, Pagans and Christians, Stephen Smith, he's like a legal theorist. It's a great book. Um, he's argued that what marked off classical Christian and pagan religion was not the question of how many gods there were, but where they located the sacred. So he quotes a scholar named James O'Donnell, uh, a scholar of uh, ancient uh, Greco-Roman religion, says, the gods were mainly the mightiest part of the world itself, not beings that somehow stood outside at all. He continues, pagan religion locates the sacred within the world. In that way, paganism can consecrate the world from within. It is a religiosity relative to an imminent sacred. As Smith notes, in the older order, the pagan gods existed to sacralize the cosmos. The ordinary course of affairs, the worship of the gods, made one feel at home in the world, at home in the forest, at home in the city, at home. And much contemporary spirituality, as well as, as, well as even exclusive humanism, is exactly that. It's trying to sacralize the world order and make you feel at home in the world in a way that like classic transcendent spirituality often alienated you from. Now, one more point here. The paganization of the culture has not only impacted the pagans, right? Taken in the sense of explicit or atheistic or imminent spirituality we've been exploring, um, Charles Taylor said alongside this, uh, an anthropocentric shift took place in the way we look at the world. And he notes... Um, four components to it, and I'm going to kind of blow through these quickly, uh, that, that each played a role in reducing the role and the place of the transcendent. First, there's a reduction of the sense of provi God's providential purposes to the achievement of our own good. So God's benevolence, God's goodness, becomes to be entirely defined in terms of human flourishing, right? This worldly human good, God is God, God is God, God is good on human terms, and this is increasingly psychologized and therapeutic in nature. When we think about how God is good to us, God is good to us if there is some psych psychological therapeutic benefit to us that we are experiencing. Second, there's the eclipse of grace. Human good is conceived as something transparent to human reason and achievable largely through human technique and discipline, even if God is the ultimate creator and guarantor of this kind of plan by which you uh, achieve uh, human flourishing. Now, uh, accompanying these two things is a fading sense of mystery, right? Since God's plans must be clear and achievable and transparent to human uh, reason and, and, the, and human resources, miracles or any sense of inscrutable uh, providence have no more place in this scheme, right? And then finally, um, the Christian vision of transformation is reduced from something kind of grand and bold like deification to uh, like a, a mere heavenly afterlife. Now, not all of this is directly applicable to uh, congregations or churchly theologians, but the relevant point for us is that moderns have this tendency, and this is all of us. Gavin, Gavin was right to highlight that. This isn't secular, secular age out there, and then we're holy and fine in here. It's, it's the air we're all breathing. It moves us towards this tendency towards a disengaged stance towards the universe where we have this confidence that God's ways and God's goodness, which again is construed in terms of human flourishing, things I like, um, are things that can be investigated, litigated, and vindicated before the bar of human reason. God's goodness has to be transparent to human reason in terms of imminent human goods. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God is in... If he is acknowledged at all, he's in the dock, right? 
Now, what does all this have to do with the holiness of God? Uh, Abraham uh, Heschel, uh, in his magisterial study of the prophets, put it this way. He says, our age has no sense for spiritual grandeur. Spiritual to us means ethereal, calm, moderate, slight, imperceptible. We respond to beauty. Grandeur is unbearable. We are moved by soft religiosity and would like to think that God is lovely, tender, and familiar, as if faith were a source of comfort, but not readiness for martyrdom. See, a God who is not properly affirming of our craving for spiritual peace, our inner impulses, drives, hopes, identities, sexual proclivities, comforts, and conspicuous consumption, a God who is exalted and high above, who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth from without beholding the works of humanity in one single perfect gaze in judgment, this seems far too much for our generation that's curved in on itself to bear. Which brings me to my question, how does one pastor in such a time? How does one proclaim law and gospel to people with a narrowed vision, a fully imminent imagination, a hostility towards the backdrop of the gospel, which is the flaming holiness of their sovereign, their Lord, the King of all the earth? For this, I want us to look at the encounter in Isaiah 6. Isaiah was, to be sure, not a man who ministered in the same secular age that we did, that we do in 21st century America. And yet, in his own 8th century context, he frequently finds himself calling Israel away from the worship of imminent gods and trusting in human imminent plans, military, political plans, instead of relying on the one holy, transcendent God, the Lord God of Israel. So what then was granted to Isaiah in order to plant his feet firmly upon the ground? A vision of the holy king. And it's that to which I'd like to dedicate the rest of our time through sort of a cross-index reading of Isaiah 6. It'll allow us to unfold various aspects of the doctrine of divine holiness uh, to our benefit, hopefully the benefit of our people, and ultimately to God's own glory. Um, sadly, this, this isn't going to be a strict exposition of the passage. I'm going to bounce around a bit. But, but what I want to do is I want to make seven key interconnected points about God's holiness as it is presented in Isaiah's vision of God, the holy king, on the throne of the cosmos. Are you guys okay with that? Awesome. I'm going to do it anyways. I don't have anything, really, <laughs> I don't have anything else written. Um, where is... Oh, well. I, I left it. It's fine. Um, all right, so we're going we're gonna to begin with our first point, uh, which is that God's holiness is essential and eternal. So we're going to begin simply with the dramatic acclamation of the Trisagion, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So right off the bat, before we speak to what God's holiness is, we know this, it is essential and of the eternal nature of God, central to his being and life. Stephen Charnock points out, in his classic study of the attributes, that no other attribute of God is singled out linguistically this way. The, the, the trebled cry, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is, is uniquely acclaimed in this way in the scriptures. What's more, this doesn't, this doesn't uh, appear to be like a special number that they put on for Isaiah's benefit at the moment, right? When John the seer on the Isle of Patmos, hundreds of years later, gets, an, gets a piercing vision of the one on the throne, uh, the angels are, are singing maybe different stanzas of basically the same song. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're proclaiming him holy, holy, holy eternally. Who was and is and is. This is, this is who he is. This is who he was. This is who he's going to be. A million, trillion years hence. Holy. And if he is this eternally, this is what he is essentially. I don't think it's too much to say that, if God, that God is eternally holy, but God's holiness is eternal. Okay, so that's the first point. Okay, but what is he essentially and eternally? Well, we can't do theology through etymology or entirely by word studies. It makes sense to ask, what is the basic term, the, the word holy, Kadesh, mean? As it happens, the often term, uh, the often heard notion of separation or segregation is still useful and serviceable, even if it's probably not derived from uh, the, the, the root coming from the term to cut. Um, in the classic text that describes the nature of the sacred, uh, Leviticus 10.10, the Lord commands the priests of the line of Aaron to do a very important thing. He says, you are to teach the people to discern between the holy and the common and between the clean, the unclean and the clean. Right? This is one of their main jobs. Now, the holy then takes its meaning semantically as well as theologically within that field of opposed pairs, holy, common, clean, unclean. And we don't have to go into all the details of the symbolic system, but Philip Jensen nicely summarizes the basic relationship between the two categories. He says, holiness and its opposite, the profane or the common, represent the divine relation to the ordered world, and the clean, with its opposite, the unclean, embraces the normal state of human existence in the earthly realm. Most basically, then, for our purposes, the technical antonym of the holy is the, is the profane or the common. Holy things, days, peoples, objects, they are holy because they have been consecrated, set apart, and ordered to the divine service. Things are holy because they are related to God. Now here, I'm not answering the question still, what does it mean for God to be holy? But I, I, I want to point this, our second point, which flows logically from this. Whatever it is, divine holiness is essential and originary in God, and it's derivative and contingent in us. Thomas Watson puts it this way. Uh, he was right when he said, God is holy intrinsically. He is holy in his nature, and therefore, God is holy primarily. He is the origin and pattern of holiness and is the cause of all holiness in others. To, to, to kind of appeal to the grammar of simplicity for a moment, for a moment which is we say all that, all that God is, is all that God has is God. God is his attributes, that kind of thing. God is his own holiness. He is identical with it and cannot be parted from it. And as it happens, all other holiness is, in some sense, God's. We might say that all holiness is originally God's and every other form of holiness is had by way of participation or relation to God. It's borrowed holiness. Basil of Caesarea in his uh, classic on the Holy Spirit put it this way, for every creature holiness is applied from the outside, yet God does not need it applied for he is the source of holiness. So I, here's, here's an important thing here. All holiness, all holiness is, is essentially um, theocentric and divine in its origin and reference point. And this is, a, this is just to diverge a little bit. This needs to be like key in our thinking about sanctification and holiness in the church. Holiness doesn't just mean uh, like, oh, someone's holy. Oh, they're, they're like morally good. To be actually holy, you actually have to be referring, oriented 
towards God, all of your goodness, all of your action, if somebody like does a bunch of good stuff and it's not oriented towards God, they're not holy. Holiness, all goodness, well, well, uh, this is verging into a later point here, but it's theocentric. It's absolutely theocentric. And this, this also comes, this comes to a point in sanctification where um, you can't generate your own holiness, right? All your holiness you get is from God. So sanctification is a gift of grace from the Lord as well. So quit trying to white-knuckle it. Holiness comes by way of proximity. Harold Sankbell, Care of Souls, he's got a great chapter on that. Holiness comes by way of proximity to the Holy One. So get near God. That's how you get holy. Okay, third point. Divine holiness is separation and singularity. This point aside, again, this is, this is where we start to actually tell you what holiness is. What is it essentially? Well, I think we can only appreciate it slowly and unfold it, but to begin, at the very least, it means God is separated, set off, and marked out from all that is common, all that is ordinary, the realm of the mundane. But that's still stating it too negatively and without proper force. I want to say this. I want to suggest to you that the key other terms that kind of fill out holiness initially are, are um, we might say, Yahweh's incomparability, his uniqueness and singularity. So his incomparability, uniqueness, and singularity are more positive notions with separation uh, and, and segregation being set off. Uh, we see this with particular force in the early praise of Israel, having seen Yahweh, the mighty man of war, uh, in, in, in the Exodus, plunge Pharaoh's horses and riders into the abyss of the Red Sea. Moses extols him in a hymn of praise, uh, Exodus 15, singing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer, of course, is no one and nobody, right? Yahweh is distinguished not only from what is earthly and mundane, but from what is even allegedly divine. In his victory, in his, he is exalted over Pharaoh and all the so-called gods of Egypt. So despite the, the, despite the existence of other so-called gods, angels, demons, the gods of the nations, that sort of thing, um, the God of Israel is without peer and transcends the categories where all the other gods are placed. The categorical comparison is raised in order to be dismissed. Right? Turning to another key psalm of praise, uh, Hannah, First, uh, or, yeah, First Samuel. Um, when Hannah's barrenness is taken away and her shame is removed, she praises Yahweh. And this is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. She sings, there is none, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah's song, besides being intrinsically awesome, draws on the same well of reflection from Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32 that highlights Yahweh as alone the rock upon which Israel may depend. Right? God is God alone. There's no God beside you, for he alone is the rock whose sovereign rule over history extends to the awful power of life and death, right? the ability to kill and make alive, both to the birth of Israel and the power to grant the barren woman seven children. Here we encounter what, um, what Richard Bauckham's called the, the transcendent uniqueness of Yahweh, or, or, or we might see it at the exegetical beginnings of Thomas Aquinas' teaching that God is not in some genus, 
right? It's not that God is in the same like category as other gods and he's distinguished from the other gods by having these particular unique qualities, unique accidents. Like, like I, I am, I'm, in the, I'm in the genus of human lung with, with a genus or species. I always, I always confuse the two. I'm looking at Fred. Fred, tell me. Um, but the point is this. Look, God doesn't have certain particular qualities that like distinguish him from all the other gods. It's just that like he's not in the same category. He is just alone, Yahweh, the creator who makes all things and who is a category in the class. Everything else is just, it's a different, completely other thing. God is not a thing, (laughs) even more. So Yahweh is separated because his existence is singular and unique, demarcating him alone as God over and against the world and the true God over and against the false pretender gods. So holiness is, is part of the biblical vocabulary we have for articulating what uh, I always forget if it's Richard, I think it's Robert Sokolowski, is called the, the Christian distinction between God and the world. This is the basic Christian distinction between God and the world. And we got some of it uh, in the last talk as God the creator and before that. But, but holiness is part of the biblical idiom that names that. Now with this central point in mind, we can move to our next point and see how appropriate it is to recognize the way divine holiness encompasses the Lord's ontological and metaphysical superiority and uniqueness, his transcendence and perfection. And this, I think, comes through in the vision of Isaiah and elsewhere in Scripture. So several figures in Isaiah 6 communicate this to us. First, there's the timestamp, right? Isaiah has this vision uh, the same year that King Uzziah, the cursed, impure, and transient king, dies. And then what, is, what, is, what does he see? What does he see? He sees the eternal king who unchangeably, immutably reigns forever and ever seated upon his throne as the Holy One. So you've got this immutability kind of imagery built in. Second, Isaiah sees yet doesn't see the Lord on the throne high and lifted up, right? We don't get a description of him. We just get the train, just the edges, the outskirts of his robe that fill the camp. It's like Isaiah is looking up and he sees the very bottom of God's toe is, is, the, is like the, the, the scope of how little is described here, right? The height, the distance suggesting the immensity and omnipresence of the Lord who, as Solomon prayed in the dedication of the temple, cannot be contained by heaven and earth and the highest heaven. Something else, uh, it's reminiscent of, of the burning bush dynamic is here. Another key figure talking about God's metaphysical holiness uh, biblical scholar Nahum Sarna reflects on this. He, he talks about, think about the fire. The fire is self-sustaining, right? The fire requires no substance for its existence or perpetuation. The fire doesn't depend on the bush, right? The bush is there, and so is the fire, and it's present to it, but it doesn't depend on it. It occupies the same space, but it doesn't consume it. So you've got this smoldering, burning, yet independent, existing fire that attests to kind of the aseity, the self-sustaining glory and presence of God, the Holy One. So we have that. This fire is an apt sign of God's metaphysical holiness insofar as his way of existing bespeaks a transcendent that's so radically above the ordinary reality of secondary causes that he can be radically present to it. And I'd like to suggest that part of the priestly task of theology is learning to help people distinguish between God's primary, unique, transcendent mode of causality and existence and our uh, secondary, contingent, uh, common mode of causality and existence. 
There's more implied, right? You've got this indescribable invisibility and spirituality. The Lord hinted at in the fact that there's basically, again, no description of his figure. All we are told is that there's this one who's seated on the throne, and you've got the description of the robe, and that's it. Right? You, don't, you don't see him. Finally, there's, and this is, this is something I'm going think about, there's the terror of the seraphs. Right? The wing, the angelic, potentially fire. This. So scholars will debate. I, I, I have a part of my dissertation where I looked at this a little bit, but um, they're, they're trying to figure out what kind, of, what kind of angels are these, and a lot of them argue that they're like these serpent-like creatures, and I love that because you basically have these massive flaming uh, dragon angels who are <laughs> recognizing something unimaginably greater, more powerful, and threatening. Right? Rudolf Otto describes God as the holy, the holy is the holy other, and he uses that Latin phrase referred to earlier, the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, whose imposing mystery like, impels them to both praise and terror, like desire and freakiness. Um, now, Karl Barth, Karl Barth criticized Rudolf Otto's doctrine of God's holiness as being like, insufficiently moral insofar as God isn't just like a shiver down your spine or something. But the reality is when you come up, up against something so immense, a presence so overwhelming, a reality so infinitely beyond your rational capacity to comprehend, there should be a shiver going down your spine, right? When you stand before a waterfall with millions and millions of tons of metric pressure coming down that could crush you underneath it, a shiver could plausibly go down your spine. When you see a 50-foot wave bearing down on you, a shiver can go down your spine, and that would be appropriate. When you recognize that the heights of Kilimanjaro and Everest are not even the size of like braille bumps to the immensity of God, a shiver, when you think about being out into, in space, imagine just being in space and there's nothing for trillions and trillions of miles. And that's not even God's backyard in terms of his, the sheer weight of his transcendence. Dragons floating before you with six wings, if you saw that, you would stifle a scream that would be welling up in your throat, and then you recognize that they're shielding their eyes from him. That should send a shiver down your spine. That's appropriate. And that is part of and points to the singular, incomparable metaphysical awesomeness of the Holy One. And there's a sense in which he's not a sight to behold at least not without the holiness which he must give you, without which no one will see God. Which brings us to our next point. Uh, and this is a point that I think is biblically quite clear and yet isn't always brought out when we're thinking about God's holiness, which is, which is the, connection, the tight connection between holiness and kingship and authority. John Calvin, on this passage, comments on it. He actually didn't talk about holiness very much in, the, in his commentary on Isaiah 6. It's funny. But he does say that this description holds out to us as in sunbeams, the brightness of God's infinite majesty that we may learn by it to behold and adore his wonderful and overwhelming glory. We'll talk about glory in a minute, but this majesty, the majestic Lord, more and more imagery could be adduced to speaking to God's kingship here, but I want to note the setting first. The figure of the temple, and by extension the tabernacle, both are divine dwellings, right? They're palaces, they're the, the mobile and the, and the immobile version. Um, where the great king dwells, right? And what you have to understand is that all of the things that speak to uh, God's divine royal, God's royalty um, also speak to his holiness simultaneously, 
right? So the concentric circles uh, of narrowed approach. So first you've got the logic of the tabernacle and the temple that follow the logic of Sinai. You've got the three zones, the courtyard, and you got the holy place, and you got the most holy place, and all of this corresponds to, the, to Sinai. You've got like people down at the, at the edge of the mountain, and then there's the second layer up where the elders go to feast with, with God, and then there's the final zone up top where you got the blazing cloud of glory where the Lord sits, that's the, that's the most holy place, and that mo- only Moses ascends to meet with God. Um, the beauty and grace of each layer increases the closer one comes to the center. You got ram skins and bronze used for the outer courts, and then you got silver and gold and, and kind of fine linen, and then the most intrinsic, costly items of pure gold and, 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 and highly decorated and braided linen in the most intricate and holy place, culminating in the golden ark itself, the throne chariot, or the footstool, whichever side of that debate you, you, you land on, uh, of the king, from which he dispenses royal judgments and decrees his covenant. Each layer implies increasing glory and decreasing access, as is fitting for a king. But what, may, what, may, what must be noted at the same time is that the signals of increasing proximity, it signals increasing proximity to divinity and holiness and therefore danger. The logic of approaching the holy God is either analogous to or identical with the logic of approaching the king. You don't. Not as you are. But here, the protection, and here's the interesting thing, the, the, the seraphs, this, this logic is not left behind with the seraphs, right? The seraphs form a, a holy a guard to the divine king, just as the cherubim on the ark, for these you know, freaky wing fingers, form a guard for the king, um, here's, the, here's the irony. The seraphs and the cherubim are not protecting God like the guards protect every other king. They're not protecting God. They're keeping us from approaching lest wrath break out. That phrase echoes in Levitical literature. They guard lest we transgress against his royal divinity and suffer that wrath. So drawing together what is hopefully not too redundant, a point by now, R.W. Moberly connects holiness and kingship in, in, the, in, the, in the refrain of the Sanctus or the Trisagion, noting the kingship of Yahweh is not so much proclaimed in the words of the seraphim as it is interpreted. God's kingship entails his holiness. And this is right, but the inverse of Moberly's uh, dictum is also true. God's holiness entails his kingship. Isaiah's vision teaches that the Holy One is the king And as the king, he is holy. His singularity, his uniqueness, his unutterable incomparability render him and him alone worthy of that title and the concomitant authority in its most absolute and true sense. And here I want to make an important point. Kingship and majesty together draw out an essential element in the doctrine of God's holiness, which is not only that it's a characteristic of his being, it's also a mode of his relating to us. Right? God is present to his people in the tabernacle and the temple as their king, as their Lord, as Adonai, Yahweh, the one who reigns over them. This is how he relates to them. He dwells with them as the Lord. He's never with them as anything else than the Lord because he's holy. So this implies both transcendence and imminence. It's not, it's not like a stark transcendence of like, here's the world and then here's God and, and they never like touch or meet or whatever. Again, he's got a radical transcendence such that he, he is, 
He's able to be fully imminent, but he's imminent in a unique, transcendent way, which is as the king. He is the one who sits in judgment on the throne, who sees into the hearts of men, who surveys all of history in a single sweeping gaze and pronounces judgment and has the capacity to do so because he's the creator, which means he's ontologically suited to rule and morally unquestioned and unquestionable as he sees all and is the foundation of all justice and moral absoluteness in the universe. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But all other kings, all other governors, all other rulers, even the rule of our own consciences are limited and finite and incapable of passing unquestioned judgment. But not the Lord, because he is holy, because he's unique, because he is infinite. He is the eternal king who is not mired in the flux of history and time. He rules and he reigns. That point noted, we come now to the aspect of God's holiness, holiness that's most commonly associated with it, uh, popularly, which we might term his moral purity and excellence, the perfection of his will and action. We begin with the simple recognition of Isaiah's cry and his collapse. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean, a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Yes, he is undone because of the ontological weight and the majestic kingship of God, but even more, potentially, having proclaimed Israel's uncleanness, the prophet recognizes himself as one among them. He is a man of unclean lips. Though he a prophet, he's appointed to speak of God, yet he's guilty of impure confession compared to the purity that he sees before him, the purity of the seraphs. So the, the prophet's moral collapse here gives testimony to the vision of God's holiness bringing like a fearful consciousness of God's purity and a, simultaneously, a simultaneous exposing of the ugliness of all that is defiled and profane. I think that's uh, Motier, but I lost the footnote. Um, before the Holy One, whose eyes are too pure to behold evil, even his holy angels are impure. This is obviously not just a matter of ritual uncleanness, but the moral uncleanness of a disobedient people with mixed impure motives who deserve judgment upon them that Isaiah has been proclaiming. The seraph's painful coal also points us to this, which purges his, purges his uncleanness and atones for his guilt. Here the prophet serves as a figure for Israel herself, whom God will purify as with a hot coal through the paradoxical work of hardening and judgment. We'll see that in a moment. But this sweep of things ought to alert us against narrowing God's moral holiness to merely its negative expression as retribution and wrath. It's much more. Leviticus 19 gives us broader instruction in the scope of Yahweh's moral holiness. In his instruction, through Moses to the people, he declares, you shall be holy as I am holy, reminding Israel of the shape and the purpose of the covenant that he made with them in Exodus 19. They will be priests, they will be holy, they will be set apart among the people, among the nations. Why? So that they can represent him in his holiness. They will be a unique nation whose life 
uniquely represents the unique God among the nations who have a bunch of false gods. So, um, and this is true in all of the holiness of their lives, ritual, political, ethical. As Jacob Milgram notes, their life is to imitate the perfect life of God. And so Leviticus 19 serves as like a catechism of sorts, giving testimony to the full sweep of the moral holiness of God. We could highlight several things here. But first, I just want to talk about the logic of of Israel's moral holiness. And the first thing is it's punctuated by repetition. If you read the thing over and over, go, go later and read Leviticus 19. I am Yahweh, your God or simply I am Yahweh, just keeps getting repeated, like after every command, over and over and over. And, and, and what, what's happening here is the presence of Yahweh and the nature of Yahweh are being put forward as the, as the logic and the requirement of Israel's keeping the commands. Right? God may forward other reasons alongside of this, but the commands are often simply grounded with I am Yahweh. God is a good enough motive for you to do whatever he's telling you right now. Right? God himself, in that way, keeps the first commandment. Honoring himself, loving himself, recognizing himself most perfectly because of who he is. This is why many Reformed uh, theologians and divines were right to see as central in, in God's moral holiness an element of self-preference. Edward Lee notes uh, that holiness is that excellent of, excellence of his nature by which he gives himself, as I may say, unto himself, doing all for himself, and in all, and by all, and above all, aiming at his own pleasure and glory. There is a theocentricity to God's own moral perfection. And this, by the way, is one of those notes where you have like simultaneous uniqueness and um, analogy. So we talk about communicable and incommunicable attributes, and holiness kind of spans both, in that... um, in any creature, this kind of self-referentiality would be uh, like insane, but it would, be more, it would be moral imperfection and defect, right? And yet, because God actually is God, he actually is the center of value and goodness and beauty and so forth. It would be godless for him to do otherwise. And yet, this holiness is communicable and analogous in that we are supposed to be like God in valuing God centrally. So that's simultaneously a unique thing about him and a thing that you're supposed to imitate. That said, within God's ethical holiness, much of the tradition has been right to see that it is also the foundation of God's order of justice. Someone like Charles Hodge would talk about the outward egress, I love that word, egress, of his moral holiness. Leviticus 19 forbids injustice in court, partiality, slanderous witnesses, or perversion of justice. Right? For this reason, Psalm 99 praises God's righteous rule, repeating, holy is he, holy is he, holy is he, three times in a hymn that highlights that he is the divine king who, quote, loves justice and establishes equity. That's why we say holy is he. And for this reason, God's holiness has been rightly associated with his punitive justice, jealousy, and wrath. Isaiah 5.16, chapter right before this, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. God expresses his holiness, sanctifies his name, the holy name for which he acts chiefly. Go read Ezekiel 36. He he sanctifies it through the righteous judgment against sinners who had arrogantly refused to submit to God's rule the wicked who were trampling the poor. 
calling into question God's justice, calling into question God's commitment to uphold his holy word and an order of justice for the people he had elected unto himself. And so he sanctifies his name in punishing those wicked and humbling their arrogance. So injustice is the holiness of God expressed. Finally, we would miss something absolutely central, though, if we fail to recognize that God's love is an ingredient of God's moral holiness, uh, or perhaps better, a mode of God's moral holiness. Central to the catechesis of Leviticus 19, actually actually central, (laughs) is the command to love our neighbors and our sojourners. Yahweh's holiness is expressed and seen in his love for Israel by redeeming them from the Exodus when they were sojourners, and Israel is supposed to imitate him in this merciful, loving kindness. Incidentally, this should, this should warn us off uh, uh, the road that was taken by a lot of 20th century theologians who would uh, exalt or elevate John's statement, God is love, to the role of a central and unique, life, unique point in God's life to the exclusion of something like holiness or something like that. Now, if you're paying attention to the doctrine of simplicity, you won't do that anyways. But the, the biblical logic of holiness itself points against this in that holiness comprehends within it or is synonymous in key ways, overlapping, you could call it an overlapping perichoretic relation or whatever you want to do. But the point is this, there should be no tension between these attributes because love is an expression of God's holiness. And it's not even just low-grade love either, like mercy towards um, somebody who's, who's in need. Uh, Yahweh's loving holiness is not restricted to dealing with Israel and her misery, uh, but in her sin. Hosea 11, Hosea 11, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Paradoxically, the moral holiness of God is expressed both in his righteous wrath against sin and in his mercy, his loving restraint. God's singularity, his incomparable uniqueness is displayed in that precisely unlike you and I, unlike men and women, The Holy One doesn't come in wrath to make a complete end for those who deserve it, but shows mercy. God's perfection is the unique, singular, transcendent one that can say, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And if you read that in Isaiah 55, he's talking about his mercy towards Israel. He's not talking about his inscrutable judgments of of justice. He's talking about his mercy, his salvation. And it is precisely this tension and dynamic that we see at work in the prophetic word given to Isaiah about Israel's future. Isaiah is called to preach in Israel until she is laid waste without inhabited, until the the people are moved far away and the land is forsaken, until she's in exile to sanctify God's holy name that they had put shame on. As his holy people had degraded his name, he sanctifies it by removing them in the exile for their sins. And yet, and yet, the holy seed is its stump. Though the holy fire of Yahweh burns Israel, consuming sin and dross, the purpose is purgative. That one day Israel may be cleansed and sanctified on the other side of judgment. And this is not to happen only in Israel's judgment, right? 
reading with a grain of Scripture, we see the fullness of this prophecy come to pass in the ministry, the life, the passion, and resurrection of the true seed, the Holy One, Jesus, the Christ, who says in John that he sanctifies himself unto the work in which he's called so that he might sanctify his disciples, the church, all of which, this is John 17, all of which he's doing in order to sanctify the name of his Holy Father. Right, only then in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ do we see the divine holiness as God's moral perfection expressed in its most perfect form, full of justice, fidelity, mercy, love, wrath, all of it. Right, the moment the Lord glorifies himself in the lifting up of the Holy Son upon the cross to glorify the name of the Holy Father and the power of the Spirit of holiness whom he received without measure, that is when we see the holiness of God. And just here, we come to what we might call the summit of our reflections. Holiness is glory, dignity, and majesty. Return with me once more to the cry of the seraphim. Once again, here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Now, at the same time the angels praise God as holy, they speak of the refulgence, I like that word, the refulgence, the emanating luminosity of the being, character, and reputation of God displayed in history, the glory of God. And what we come to acknowledge in Scripture is that there's a conceptual collocation, an association between God's holiness and God's glory. And not just here, right? Nadab and Abihu, they are consumed by the fire of the Lord by, because, of, because of offering a strange fire in Leviticus 10. What, is, what, is, what, is, what does the Lord say? God tells Moses and Aaron, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Sanctifying and glorifying is same action. Same thing's happening. In Scripture, God's name is identified with his glory, and at the same time, the term, uh, the adjective holy is, is, is the one that's most commonly applied to it, more than any other adjective in Scripture. Uh, what's more, praising the Lord of hosts, right, the heavenly beings cry, holy, holy, holy. And yet in Psalm 29, they also cry glory. And what I'm suggesting is that these are not substantially different acclamations, but the same confession under a different aspect. Um, to do a bit of history here, in speaking of this relationship, Johann Albrecht Bengel, the 17th century Wurttemberger uh, divine, he, he coined this dictum that whenever you read an Isaiah 6 commentary, you, everybody quotes this, um, this little formula. They say, Ottinger and Bengel, and nobody throws a reference down. I had to go digging a lot to get this reference. But, but they use this formula. For holiness is hidden glory, and glory is holiness shining forth. I'll repeat it because it's such a good formula. Holiness is hidden glory, and glory is holiness shining forth. Bengal's contention is that holiness names, and I quote, the excellence, the dignity, or divinity of the divine nature, the majesty of the divine essence of which glory is the visible display. So to pause for a second, I want to reference Petrus van Maastricht his account of, glory, of the glory of God in Scripture. And he argues there's several ingredients within, within it. So he says, first, there is an eminence owing to God's attributes which form the foundation of God's glory. So there's like this internal eminence that grounds God's glory. 
along with the splendor associated with them. That's the second thing. And third, there's the recognition of that splendor. And then finally, fourth, there's the actual celebration of that splendor by people, which we might call the glorification of God. All four of those things get referred to as God's glory in Scripture. What I want to say is, at the very least, for us, there is an internal, intrinsic glory and an external, like, recognized glory of God. The visible luminosity and the internal perfection that grounds that luminosity. It is in that sense that I want to say that holiness is the inner meaning of God's glory. The divine holiness is the eminence, the dignity, the beauty, the perfection of God made manifest in glory. To give a picture, um, we've, we've said this before, but in Scripture, God's holiness is often associated with fire, right? The fire of Sinai, the fire consuming Nadab and Abihu, the fire of the burning bush, rendering the ground holy, the fire uh, that, uh, uh, that renders the censers of uh, the sons of Korah holy. Well, if God's holiness may be pictured as a fire, a consuming fire, then glory is the light pouring forth from that fire. I'm I'm invoking an an old image here from from an analogy from the Trinitarian debates in the fourth century, but but just as we might distinguish the light from the heat and from the fire, it's really impossible to like separate them or, or, or say they're different things, right? Something similar is happening with holiness and glory. Something similar is going on there. An important point follows from this. Holiness, um, you might have been wondering, like, man, Derek is saying, like, literally everything is holiness. Yes. (laughs) Actually, um, kind of. Holiness is a summative attribute, uh, much the way glory is. Van Matrick notes, the intrinsic eminence of God is not limited to one or two attributes. Like, well, the glory of God is really his love. Yes. Also his omnipresence. Also his righteousness. all, All of it. All of it is an ingredient within and is shined forth in the glory of God, his reputation, his beauty, his fullness, right? And and there's the sense in which it's a total attribute. I'm saying something similar is true of holiness. Holiness is as the inner meaning of of glory bears a similar relationship to all the attributes, to, to to the divine dignity of the whole. To draft in another attribute, just for fun, we might say that holiness names the complete and total perfection of the divine essence in biblical idiom, to say that God is holy is to name his transcendence of every limitation and defect, all lack of finitude and blemish, for God possesses the fullness of every good. Now, at this point, many questions arise, but one important one that might be lurking in the back of your mind is whether I have articulated a new view, a novelty, right? Is this some newfangled reading given by the biblical scholars to... um, correct bad traditional readings or understandings or that kind of thing. I, I, I don't think so. Some people have tried to put it that way. Um, something that people came up with when they started paying attention to, to Hebrew words in the 18th century or something like that. Uh, but right off the bat, I'll just point out that, again, Bengal was a 17th century design, divine. But he actually collected, uh, he, he wrote a dissertation where he collected a bunch of quotes from a bunch of church fathers. It's lost. But he argued that that's been the, that's been the understanding of the bulk of the church for most of the church history. And, and just, just to substantiate a little bit, going back, early church father, uh, some people don't call him father, but Origen, commenting on Leviticus 11, commenting on, on the command to be holy as I am holy. He writes, just as it says, I am set apart and separated at a distance from everything that is praised or worshipped, either on earth or in heaven, just as I surpass every creature and I am set apart from everything which I have made, so also you be set apart from all those who are not holy or dedicated to God. Everything created 
God transcends. So are you. He, has, he points to this creator creature, full ontological and metaphysical and moral transcendence. Later, uh, Dionysus in the divine names clusters the, the titles Holy of Holies, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods, and he unfolds their different senses relating to God. And he says, God is Holy of Holies insofar as holiness is freedom from all defilement. But importantly, he goes on to say, as the cause of all things is himself overflowing with them in one transcendent excess of all, he is called Holy of Holies and all these other names. For he is, you might say, brimming causality and supreme transcendence. For those getting nervous about me quoting Origen and Dionysus, witness one of the fountainheads of Reformed and Protestant tradition, John Calvin. Exodus 15, we're on safe ground here. The word, this is, what, this is what Calvin says, the word sanctitas, holiness, expresses that glory which separates God from all his creatures. And therefore, in a manner, it degrades all the other deities which the world has invented for itself, since the majesty of the one only God is thus eminent and honorable. And just to cap it off, Zacharias or Sinus, uh, basically the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, in his commentary says this, God we talk about the word holy. God himself, who is most holy and pure, is what the word holy means, or it signifies essential uncreated holiness, which is God himself. For all the virtues, hear this, for all the virtues and properties of God constitute his essential holiness. These are not lone voices. I don't think we're in the realm of novelty here. In church history, I also don't think it's, I think it's very plain from scripture after long reading that that this summative conception of holiness, the total internal perfection, the dignity of the divine essence, is manifested in the glory of God. I'm going to add one more point in here. It's like a sub-point of this last point, which is of this section, which is just to recall, God is one and holy as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's triunity should not be far from our reflections on God's unity and the, way, the one way in which he exists. And I'm just going to quote, uh, John Webster, because it's tough to go wrong there, um, on this. He says, The act in which God fulfills his holy being as Father, Son, and Spirit differentiates him from every other being. As God enacts his majestic identity, he is entirely himself. Like all God's acts, this act of personal self-differentiation is wholly effortless, uncaused, and perfect requiring nothing for its fulfillment beyond itself. God's otherness is not something which God comes to have in rivalry between himself and others. The divine being is replete and involved in no agonistics. God's holiness is thus his transcendence of any possible relation in which he is merely one factor alongside another, even if it be supreme, even if it be a, the supreme or victorious factor. There is none holy besides the holy God. He simply is. And this is who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there are several things that follow from this, if all of this is true. But I want to point out this simply. I think we can begin to appreciate the way the contemporary moment, the character of this pagan secular age is set against our coming to know and understand and live in light of this grandeur, this glory, this transcendent one who relates to us, not as the, the sacralizing presence who confirms uh, that the sunny day was nice, or this sexual encounter was divine, or this internal impulse 
or that spark telling you to make your own way uh, or your own truth or your own sacred feminine or sacred masculine or vital warrior or whatever is, is, is really it. And that's the true deep vibe to the universe. No, all of that is set against the holy king, high and exalted, the one who reigns and rules with justice, the transcendent one who comes near and dwells with people as smoke and fire, throwing into sharp relief all of their sinful and deviled and degraded um, ways of living before him, even as it consumes them and transforms them and purifies them into glorious, holy beings themselves. One last question. How do we proclaim such a God? As I alluded to earlier, many of us feel not quite like Isaiah, but as if we've been given a daunting task. We're all operating in pastorates post-COVID. And I'm a pastor too. I'm a campus minister. I'm usually not this. I'm usually in shorts and sandals trying to talk to kids who don't, don't really care, right? Post-COVID, in a time of unending political turmoil, we hear about folks deconstructing, we hear about friends in the pastorate who've flamed out or blown up their church on their way out. And you're sitting there wondering, is that me next? I've got doubts. I've got fears. I'm exhausted. Or maybe that's not you, but, but you, you, I mean, how do I deal? How do I proclaim this vision? The reality is the justification of your ministry cannot actually come from this worldly goods. Right? You cannot seek an imminent glory. You cannot seek the sacralization of a comfortable life, worldly esteem or renown, or any of the potential goods that might accompany your ministry during a good season. That can't be the justification. Right? It can't even be the goods of ministry. Right? Parishioners who are visibly growing, a church filled with excited worshipers, the conversion and sanctification of members, members who actually like you, these are good things. But notice how none of them are actually promised to Isaiah here. He gets the opposite, right? His God-given ministry is to preach to a people unseeing and unhearing, and there's no accolade for Isaiah in this life except death. For this call, Isaiah himself must be purged of impurity, of mixed motives, of a divided heart shot through with sin. If he's to answer the call placed on his life, and the same must be true of us. You know, the only thing that can keep us rooted and grounded, forehead set like flint, preaching, pastoring, counseling, proclaiming the holiness of the Holy One God is a vision of the King of glory, the Holy One, high and exalted, seated on his throne, but not just seated on his throne, high and lifted up on the cross, in order to purify you, sanctify you, forgive your sins in mercy and grace and love. And as you see the holiness of him high and lifted up, that's the only thing that's going to keep you grounded. That's the only thing that's going to keep you proclaiming only a holy God. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your holiness, for the flaming beauty of your perfection that you have condescended to bestow a vision of to us. And not just bestow a vision at a distance, but to give us the gift of in your son who came near and your spirit who indwells us. We ask that you would sanctify us indeed by your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.